This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hey, everyone. Life is good. The snow is gone. It was in the 50s today. I took a nice walk through my gardens, and I can feel the edges of spring fever starting to take hold. I am so looking forward to getting my hands in the dirt. So let's talk about today's episode. Today we will be discussing what fruits are safe to put outside for birds. Then we'll be listing the many virtues of the native shrub service berry. Finally, we'll be talking with Diane DiNapoli, the Penguin Lady, about her marvelous new book about penguins for children. You might be surprised by what she has to say. And now let's go to the email mailbag. We've been receiving a lot of emails with questions, and we're going to do our best to answer them all. This week's email is from Kevin in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. He writes, I have just started growing native trees and plants. I planted some shrubs that are supposed to produce berries for birds, but they have not matured enough to bear fruit. In the meantime, I am wondering if you think it's a good idea to feed birds fruit that I buy at the supermarket. Love your show. Kevin, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're enjoying Bird Hugger. It's also great to hear you are planting native trees and shrubs in your yard. While you wait for those berry-producing plantings to mature, you can most certainly give birds the occasional fruit treat. You can successfully attract birds to your yard and even entice them to stay for the rest of the season to raise their young by offering fresh, ripe, and nutritious fruit. There are quite a number of birds willing to eat fruit left outside by humans. These include Baltimore Orioles, of course, but also catbirds, cedar and bohemian waxwings, robins, rose-breasted grosbeaks, woodpeckers, brown thrashers, mockingbirds, scarlet tanagers, Warblers, kinglets, titmice, and finches. What fruits are suitable? Many birds enjoy the citrusy pulp of oranges. You can put out orange halves by placing them on a platform feeder. There is no need to peel them, just leave them in their skins. Keep in mind, however, that if Orioles decide to stay for the summer, you can easily go through one or two oranges per day. Fresh fruit is always a better alternative than grape jelly or orange marmalade, which contains way too much sugar and too many preservatives to be healthy for birds. Don't hesitate to also put out apple halves, as well as grapes, melon halves, or overripe bananas. You can also leave out blueberries and raspberries. If you like, you can fill a suet cage with chunks of fruit and hang it from a branch. It's very important to feed birds only certified organic fruit. Fruit that is not organic can carry pesticide or herbicide residue and can be harmful to birds. It is not advisable to feed birds dried, dehydrated, frozen, canned, or chocolate or yogurt-covered fruit since extra sugar and preservatives can also be harmful to birds. Fruit does spoil quickly, especially if it sits in the sun for any length of time. It's important to clean your fruit feeders and replace older fruit before it starts to rot. 
Be especially careful to remove any fruit that is showing signs of mold, which can be toxic to birds. The ideal scenario would be to bring in any uneaten portions of fruit at the end of the day so you aren't accidentally attracting other critters like black bears. There are some fruits to avoid. Avoid avocados since they contain person, a chemical that is harmful to birds. And if you feed apples, peaches, plums, cherries, pears, or apricots, be sure to remove the pits and seeds before placing outside as they do contain cyanide. Also, don't be surprised if you start to see butterflies and moths showing up to eat the fruit that you leave out. They also have sweet tooths. Of course, ideally, you want to make your backyard a bird feeder by planting native trees, shrubs, and flowers so you are providing birds with fruit naturally. Some ideal native plantings would include a crabapple tree, elderberry bushes, black cherry trees, as well as a serviceberry, which we'll be talking about later. But as long as you are keeping your fruit feeders clean, the occasional fruit treats certainly will not hurt the birds. Kevin, thank you for contacting Bird Hugger and enjoy the spring. And speaking of providing fruit for birds, let's take a moment now to talk about native serviceberry. The serviceberry, or alamanchier, is a genus of nearly 20 native species of deciduous shrubs and small trees in the rose family. Also referred to as shadblow, shadbush, shadwood, or sugar plum, serviceberry is a hardy workhorse that is extremely adaptable to a wide range of soils and moisture levels from wet to dry. In fact, wild serviceberry can be found thriving in wetter woodland areas and swamps along ponds and streams. It can even prove drought tolerant, doing quite well growing along hillsides and rocky slopes. The shrub was named serviceberry because its bloom time coincided with the ground thawing out. When people saw serviceberry in bloom, they knew that burial sites could now be dug and funeral services could be held for loved ones who died over the winter. The serviceberry, in my opinion, is hands down one of the most valuable food-producing plants for birds. It is also extremely valuable to pollinators, drawing bees and butterflies from a wide area to its plentiful nectar. The multiple native species of serviceberry can range from a suckering shrub of 10 feet tall to tree size with a height of 25 feet tall and 20 feet in width. Although it should be said here that serviceberries growing in some southern states can reach 40 feet in height. Remarkably, the Kentucky serviceberry champion is a majestic 56 feet tall. This plant's white to pinkish white flowers usually appear in March or April and make for a pretty sight in springtime. One of the earliest shrubs to bloom, the star-shaped flowers open when emerging bees need it the most, making the plant a pollinator magnet. By the month of June, the blooms are followed by the appearance of small and highly nutritious dark red to purple-colored berries. This is why the plant is also called Juneberry. The sweet, juicy berries are a particular favorite of dozens of songbirds, including bluebirds, cedar waxwings, eastern tuhees, finches, and mockingbirds. Many species of songbird rely heavily on native berries, especially during migration periods. For example, rose-breasted grosbeaks eat a diet of 95% fruit during migration. The serviceberry is ideal for creating hedges, privacy screens, or windbreaks on your property. While they will only bloom readily in full sun, they do tolerate some partial shade. 
They mostly do well in acidic conditions, yet can also tolerate some clay. This hardy shrub can handle pollution like car exhaust, which makes them ideal for urban gardens. The other great thing about serviceberry? They are usually ignored by deer and serve as a host plant for the viceroy and red-spotted purple butterflies. In addition, they are ideal for rain gardens, as their root systems can handle short-term soggy conditions. You can also place this shrub in the survivalist category. Native Americans use service berries, deer meat, and fat to create pemmican, a winter food staple for thousands of years. The best part of all is that the more service berry shrubs you have in your yard, the more birds will flock to your property, making for a lot of bird-watching fun. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Diane DiNapoli. Known as the Penguin Lady, Diane is one of the world's top experts in penguins. She has given multiple TED Talks about her experiences working at Boston's New England Aquarium caring for penguins. She also played a pivotal role in saving thousands of oiled penguins in South Africa after a major oil spill. An award-winning author, Diane has now turned her sights to writing about penguins for children. Her new book, All About Penguins, is delightful and informative and loaded with wonderful illustrations. The book stresses the importance of protecting penguins and their habitat. Diane, welcome to Bird Hugger. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am delighted to have you on the show. I just love the new book you've written for children about penguins. Could you tell our listening audience what led you to want to write a book about penguins for children? I've been a penguin expert for 26 years. I used to take care of penguins at the New England Aquarium in Boston. And when I left the aquarium at the end of 04, I started my company, The Penguin Lady, the next year to teach kids and adults all about penguins. So I've been doing a lot of, you know, teaching, going into schools and different venues. And what actually happened with this particular book was the publisher reached out to me last year. It was about a month into COVID. The timing was good because, of course, all my in-person speaking gigs had been canceled. And they said, you know, we have this idea, a concept for a book, and their model is to come up with an outline and then seek out an expert in that topic to write the book. And so that was how this book came about. It was a write for hire project. Uh, and it was published last December, December 1st. And it was a really fun project to work on. And I absolutely love the illustrations by Ray Shule. I do too. I love the illustrations. What age group were you targeting with the book? So this is targeted for four to eight year olds, but I've had grownups tell me they love it too. <laughs> so that's always nice. When I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say, I learned so much from this book. Oh, as good. An adult. <laughs> Wonderful. So many things about penguins. I had no idea. I love so. when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping maybe today we could just uh, talk about a couple of those details about penguins that maybe most people don't know. Now, you say in your book they've been around for a long, long time. How long have they been around? Right, they have. They've been around for about 60 million years or so, the sort of pre-penguin ancestors. And then the the sort of modern-day penguins that we are familiar with today began evolving about 35 million years ago. So they evolved from birds that flew up in the sky. And then over time, 
they they changed their bodies. They started adapting to being able to find their food deep in the ocean. So today they're a bird that they cannot fly at all. Their wings are much too short. Their bodies are too large. They have solid bones in their bodies, so they're too heavy. But they now can dive deeper and swim faster than any other bird on Earth and reach prey items that even other birds can't reach. You mentioned that、uh, penguins are descended from the dinosaurs. Don't kids just love that? They love anything to do with dinosaurs, <laughs> right? I know. I, I think all kids love dinosaurs, and it, they're sort of、um, almost mythical, right? And so the fact that they've been around that long is pretty amazing. That they have survived and adapted and changed over time. Unfortunately, now they are having trouble surviving, but they've made it for millions of years so far. Now your book is so wonderfully written, and it's just chock full of information. Now you do mention one species. You know, when we think of penguins, I think most people think of you know the、uh, penguin that's sitting on the edge of a glacier in the freezing cold. But you mentioned there's one penguin that actually likes it hot. Yeah, the Galapagos penguin, which most people are very surprised to learn about, because I think we so often from cartoons on TV or greeting cards, we just think about penguins living in cold, icy places like Antarctica. But only four of the now 19 species really live and breed in Antarctica. Most live in a more temperate climate, climate similar to what we have here. I'm in New England. But there is one tropical species, the Galapagos penguin, which lives right straddling the equator in the Galapagos Islands, and so they are the warmest weather penguin. And as such, they are very small, and they are more lightly feathered, and they have bare patches on their face to help them vent excess heat from their bodies. Yes, it's just so counterintuitive to think of a penguin that likes hot weather. <laughs>、mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most people are very surprised when you know. And in, in South Africa, there are penguins. In New Zealand and Australia, South America, they're not the typical. When we think about penguins, I think we just typically think about them living in really cold places. But most of them don't. Right now, scientists are learning more and more all the time about penguins as a species. They used to think that there were just 17 species, but you're saying in your book there's more than that. I am, and this is, you know, it's still a topic up for debate. Not all scientists agree on the exact number of penguin species. So, when I was writing this book, there was a latest research coming out about the rockhopper penguins. So, a few years, maybe 15 years ago, the sort of agreed-upon number was 17 species, and at that time, it was believed that rockhoppers had two different subspecies. So, there were sort of three different rockhoppers. But but there were different subspecies, and then through DNA testing, they're like, oh wait, there's two species with one subspecies, and then just about a year and a half ago, it was like, oh wait, no, it's even there's three separate species. So like I said, though, this is all a little bit up for debate, even between the penguin researchers. And so I think even in the back of my book, in the fun fact section, the royal penguin is. A separate species in my book, and most people think it's a separate species, but there are scientists who think it's actually a subspecies of the macaroni penguin. So, you know, I'm just kind of going with the latest research that I've read. You mentioned in the book that the tallest penguin is four feet tall. I mean, that's taller than most children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.、The、kids must be amazed to read that there are penguins that are taller than they are. They are, and when I do programs in schools, I bring in 
an inflatable emperor penguin along with stuffed animals of all the species and I line them up underneath my screen and I've tried to find the size appropriate as close as I can get to it and the kids all you know they swarm the emperor penguin and want to hug it and play with it because it's the same size or larger than they are yeah they do and like then it. you said the smallest is is shorter than 12 inches I mean that's just tiny it's tiny they are so adorable so the little blue penguin which is also called the fairy penguin they are in New Zealand and Australia. They only stand about eight to 10 inches tall and they only weigh two to three pounds. So they're like the size of a water bottle. They're, they're tiny and they're really adorable. And they're one of my favorite species because they actually have the widest range of vocalizations or different types of sounds that they make. And for such a tiny bird, they are incredibly loud. And they're very nocturnal animals. And so in, in places in Australia and New Zealand where they live, people that live near them, they're not always very popular with those people because they tend to maybe nest under their porches. And then at 2.30 in the morning, they're screaming their heads off. So, so sometimes, you know, those people aren't as delighted or enchanted with the little blue penguins as some of us might be that don't live near them. <laughs> Now, in the book, you explain to children the penguin's anatomy, which is, you describe it as football-shaped, which is perfect for moving through the water at high speed. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. There's sort of like a football or a torpedo, so pointed at both ends, and exactly, that re reduces the resistance or drag, and also their feet, they, they don't, they, when they're swimming, they have their feet sticking out straight behind them. So again, they're not creating drag and their feet are on the back of their body. Most birds, their feet sort of come out of the middle of their bellies, but in penguins, it's sort of the very bottom of their belly. So that way, again, it's reducing the resistance or the drag when they're moving through the water. So they're extremely hydrodynamic. And you also mentioned this behavior they have called porpoising. They act like porpoises. What, what is that exactly? Yeah. So if you've ever seen, you know, porpoises or dolphins, the way that they will sometimes jump in and out of the water. So when they break the surface, they take a breath and then they go down and they break, come up and take a breath. So they're sort of, you know, in and out, in and out in a row. And penguins will do that same thing. And because they are birds, they don't breathe underwater. They have to breathe air. And so this way, especially when they're swimming long distances or trying to escape from a predator, there's actually less resistance moving through air than through water because water is 800 times thicker than air. So if they're trying to move quickly, they can move much faster by doing this porpoising behavior because half of their time is in air and the other half is in water. So when they do come up, they grab a quick breath and then go down. So this is a way that they can really get some speed going. That's pretty smart on their part. And, mm -hmm. um, and tell me about tobogganing. What, what is that? So for those penguins that do live where there's ice and snow, again, they can move much faster by tobogganing. So what that is, is what they'll do is lie down on their bellies on the snow or the ice and push with their wings, like their wings will be out to the sides and they'll use them sort of like paddles to help push them. And then they'll take their toenails and push off with their toenails as well behind them. And so by tobogganing, they can slide across that surface. And again, it saves energy. It's faster and more energy efficient than walking because penguins are not that energy efficient when they're walking. They're not really designed for that. 
So tell me about their intelligence level now. They sound awfully smart to me. You know, I always equate them to cats. They they seem very much in their temperament and personality and in and, and intelligence. They remind me a lot of cats. So penguins, you know, they're I would not say they are as intelligent as a dolphin say or a dog. You can train them, but it takes a lot longer and they have to want to do it. <laughs> so, they do have intelligence, but it just takes a lot more patience to work with them in that way if you're trying to train them to do a particular behavior. So, are they food motivated? Not really. No, I can't say they are. <laughs> no. What I have found at least with some of the cuz we were doing some target training with our penguins at the aquarium just to try and, you know, assist with with physical exams and things like that and and weighing them and things like that. And they can be. I mean, if you are trying to train a behavior and it's feeding time, you can use some it's it's just like training any animal. Some animals are more play motivated, some are more food motivated, some are more attention or affection motivated. So each individual is unique in that way. And the same holds true for penguins. But on the whole, I I can't say I've found that the birds we were working with at that time were particularly food motivated. It seemed to be more give me a scratch under my chin. Now unfortunately, they do have predators, but in your book you mentioned that their color the black and white coloring actually protects them from predators. Could you explain how that works? It does. So the black and white coloring that penguins have when they're in the water, you know, they're in a prone position, their back is facing up and their belly is facing down towards the seafloor. That helps that camouflage is called counter shading, that dark back and that white belly. And so if they're swimming along in the ocean and there's say a hungry fur seal looking for a meal and the fur seal is swimming above the penguin when it looks down on the dark back of the penguin that dark back blends in with the dark ocean floor below so it helps to hide them if that fur seal is swimming beneath the penguin and looks up that light belly of the penguin will blend in with either the ice that's above or the sunlight coming through the surface of the water above so it helps the penguin to blend into the surroundings But I also want to point out that most marine animals have this countershading. So, you know, if you think about a seal or an orca or a dolphin or a sea turtle or a fish, most of them do have a white belly and a darker back. So that camouflage helps both the hunter and the hunted. Wow, that is amazing. Now, these penguins are true athletes. You say in your book that the emperor penguin can dive 1800 feet down. That is just astonishing. It is astonishing, especially because this is a bird, not a marine mammal. You know, we usually think about whales and seals being able to dive to depths like that. And so for a bird to be able to do that is astonishing and and yeah, very very athletic. Now, most penguins can't dive that deep. Most penguins their average dive depth is closer to maybe 250 to 350 feet, which is still pretty deep for a bird. But you also you have to keep in mind especially with that emperor penguin and when it's diving to 1800 feet it takes time to 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 move through that thick medium of water right and so they have been recorded diving for up to 32 minutes they have to hold their breath that whole time so they really are sort of the seabird champions of of swimming and diving and breath holding 
So Diane, tell me, how did you get started working with penguins? I got into this field, let me see, well, I was 32 when I went back to college for a degree, a bachelor of science degree in animal science with a focus in veterinary nursing. And I worked at the New England Aquarium in Boston for nine years. And I did help with the rescue of 40,000 penguins from an oil spill a few years after being hired there. But my work has been mostly educational in nature. I think if I'd started this career when I was you know, 20, I would have become a field researcher because I am fascinated by research and I do read a lot. I read all the journal articles, all the scientific articles, but universities and conferences and on National Geographic ships going to Antarctica. So my mission as the Penguin Lady is to raise awareness and funding to protect penguins. So that's, you know, I donate 20% of the proceeds from my books and from every appearance to penguin conservation groups. So that's more the focus of, of my work. That is wonderful. That was going to be my next question because I've read your other book, your first book, The Great Penguin Rescue. Now, this was June of 2000. There was a terrible oil spill off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, and you played a pivotal role in saving those penguins. It's such a visceral memory. So what happened was in June of 2000, this ship named the Treasure sank off the coast of Cape Town, right between two of the main breeding islands for the African penguin. They are now an endangered species. At that time, they were a vulnerable species. And I was working at the aquarium at that time. And so I was a member of the first team of penguin experts to fly to Cape Town from the U.S. to help train and supervise all these incredible volunteers who showed up to help us. There were 12 and a half thousand of them, but none of them had any experience working with penguins or any animals. And so it was a, a an incredible experience. It was grueling and rewarding. And there were 20,000 penguins that were oiled, another 20,000 that were moved just before the oil hit their breeding islands. And in the end, after three and a half months, 95% of those 40,000 penguins were saved. So it was and still stands as the largest and most successful animal rescue in history. I have to say that's just incredible. This is the sheer size of the rescue that you took mm -hmm. on. I think it's so wonderful. It was a bit overwhelming. <laughs> I yeah. can imagine. Yeah. I, you know, the day after we arrived in Cape Town, two of us were put in charge of running this massive room that had 4,000 oiled penguins in it. And two days earlier, we'd had 65 penguins under our care. So it was definitely the most terrifying moment of my life. And it was a steep, steep, steep learning curve. Tell our listeners how you feel now about the future of penguins as a species. Well, honestly, I'm very concerned because more than half of the penguin species today are listed as threatened, near threatened or endangered, and their populations are crashing precipitously. Just the African penguin alone, they are now a highly endangered species. There are about 41,000 left in the wild, whereas a century ago, there were 3 million of them. And this is not the only species that has seen such a drastic drop in their population. And, you know, we are the problem. Humans are the problem. We've caused a lot of different problems for different species. But the top two threats to most penguin species today are climate change, global warming, and overfishing of their food source. Now, both of these 
primarily are leading to starvation. That seems to be the primary threat facing most penguins today. So, you know, hopefully we can also be the solution and and change some of our behaviors and habits to protect these animals and the environment that they live in. Penguins really are what we call an indicator species. So when you see the population of an indicator species plummeting, like we are seeing with penguins, that's an indication to us that there's a larger issue in their environment. So we really, it's about protecting the environment that these animals are living in if we want to protect them. That's right. And what are some things an individual person could do, say, if they wanted to take your advice and and try to help penguins? So there are a number of ways that people can help. One of the things I like to always recommend is to do whatever we can as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint. And there are carbon footprint calculators online that people can go and see how much carbon am I putting into the environment on a yearly basis. And most of those websites will have a lot of tips and suggestions for things that we can each do to reduce our impact. Things that you can do is shop locally, right? The less shipping we do, the less ships are out and sea, maybe having oil spills. And if people wanted to do something really specifically to help penguins directly, on my website, the, the penguinlady.com, I have a page for that you can donate. There's a whole list of very curate, carefully curated rescue and research groups. And these are places throughout the Southern Hemisphere that will save penguins that are injured or oiled in some way. They have breeding programs and different things like that that people can donate to. So they can find either a region that they're interested in or a specific species and support that rescue center. So and all of these places really survive on donations and they're doing really important work to save these different species. So that's a very specific way that people can directly help penguins. That is great. Well, Diane, I'm just in awe of everything you do and and all you've done to to help penguins and I just want to thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on the show. Thank you to Diane DiNapoli for joining us on Bird Hugger today. To order her new book, All About Penguins, which is ideal for children ages 4 to 8, go to Amazon.com or the Barnes & Noble website. For more information about Diane and her work, go to her website at thepenguinlady.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.